Barukata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher bakar bimbiim tovim veratza ve divrehim ha ne emarim beemet Barukata Adonai Haboker batorah Uv Moshe Avdo, Uv Yisrael Amo, Uvin Vie Haemet Vazedek, Biskut Mashiach Yeshua. Amen. Well, Amen. everybody, welcome to the Haftarah. Get you some for our new Sefer of Torah, Parsha Shemot. So this week, Hasiz Baz is going to be bringing down some elucidations. And with the help of Hashem, here we go. I'm Brooke Shem. Glad to be back on. It's exciting getting into the and Sefer Shmot. And Dang. this half tour really, really parallels the Parsha. Get you some. Bring it. All right. So let's talk about short introduction on Yeshayahu, since this is the half tour we're coming from, and a little bit about him, who he was, and his mission. Right. So it says Yeshayahu was endowed. He was endowed with the richest qualities of the highest genius. And since his early manhood, when he called to his prophetic office, he devoted all powers of his mind, all his moral and spiritual strength, even the incidents of his private and social life, to the performance of his mission. He endeavored to lead his countrymen in the ways of God and to oppose the divine will upon the, the conduct of the state, its rulers and its citizens. He was rightly described as the prophet of faith. In words of fire, he sought to impress this faith upon his generation and to conceive them that the divine government of the world was based on morality, justice, and equity. Animated by the fever of his religious enthusiasm, his entire being in the course of a long and strenuous career was wholeheartedly and unselfishly laid on the altar in his sacrifice in his sacred vocation to which he was divinely called in which he had readily shouldered. It fell to his lot to live in one of the most critical periods in the history of his people, when the greatest empire of the time was threatening its very existence. With singleness of aim and complete selflessness, he took the lead in advancing a policy that was not popular, but the only one which he knew could avert complete disaster. So this is a little bit about this prophet. I know we've, we've mentioned him several times in our half tour, little facts about him, but I think this gives a, a clear, fuller picture of who he was. And uh, genius, one who, who used all his, all his, um, his mind, his power um, for the sake of God and calling people back into the kingdom, into covenant, despite the fact of, as we'll even see a little bit in this half Torah, um, people's lack of motivation, the resistance to turn back to a shin. Man, that doesn't seem relevant at all. No way. <laughs> <laughs> relevant? What's that? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? All right, well, Brooke Shan, let's get into some uh, half Torah, Parsha parallels. So this really opens up with this idea of Egypt, you know, at the very beginning. Um, and so we have. Uh, these these parallel concepts of them in Egypt and Yeshiahu actually mentions the Egyptian exile and mentions a deliverance. Uh, according to like Rashi, the opening half to relates how Shem multiplied Yaakov's family in Egypt. Hence, it corresponds to the beginning of Parsha Shemot, which also tells that Bnei Israel increased in the land. Amen. And so there's also this criticism of idol worship. And so, you know, 
might not be uh, known to most people about the Exodus story, but the forefathers were engrossed in idol worship just like they were in this half Torah. And we also have this idea, um, he censures the Jews for their preoccupation with physical pleasures. And this talks about this indulgent contradicts the purpose of the Exodus, where the Jews were redeemed to serve Hashem and not become enslaved to their passions. And so, tag on that for practical takeaways. All right. Put a tab on that. Tab. Uh, we have in Parshat Shemot, Yaakov passed away and his children are subjected to the lowliness of exile. And the Haftar comforts us at the very end by assuring that ultimately, Yaakov will see the Jewish nation exalted and he'll be proud of his descendants. So, there's a few parallels about that. And then we go into our first verse of Half Torah. And there are different readings, but we're sticking with the uh, Ashkenaz. Um, All right. For this Ashkenazi. When the Jews came to Mitzrayim, Yaakov caused them to take root there. Israel blossomed and flowered with it, uh, and flowered until it filled the entire world with produce. And it mentions that Yaakov brought his family to Egypt because of family, the struggle land of Canaan. We saw that in the past uh, in portions of Rashid. He really dared not hope for any anything more than mere survival of of their family. But in his great kindness, the way Hashem's works, even though we we go on not expecting much. He gives more than we'll ever expect. We're faithful to him. Thank you, Hashem. Uh, he multiplied B'nai Israel in a very unique manner. It mentions that the, the Jewish women give birth to six children at one time. Mm-hmm. So he's talking about, what is it, the proper word? Six tuplets or six tuplets or something? Right. Uh, well, yes, uh, for six children, yeah, that's six tuplets. All right. So, so. We did more than just survive there, way tended to. We actually flourished. Beautiful. And interestingly enough, when Yaakov arrived, even though the famine was supposed to last so much longer, in his merit, the famine stopped completely. Wow. And according to another another interpretation from the Targon Yotanon and other commentaries that say this verse refers to the coming days where the Jewish people, who are referred to as Yaakov by their father's name, will take root. Israel will blossom and flower and fill the world with produce. This means they'll be gathered in from the exile where they are without roots and return to land and increase vastly. And so essentially there's another view by Rabbi Nanyo, uh, Yeshiyahu Metrani who says yes to this question. You know, which is it? The answer is yes. This is the same kindness that I did to the Jews in Egypt. I'll repeat in the future. And verse 7 um, what's mentioned here is uh, within the Haftor commentary, the Midrash commentary within this verse, says, You see my greatness, for didn't I strike the Egyptians with the very same affliction with which they smote the Jews? Just as they drowned Jewish babies, I drowned them in the Yom Suf. And didn't I slay them with the very same slain which which they slew the Jews? Because he killed Jews, Pharaoh and his ministers were killed. Mm. In fact, each of the ten plagues afflicted the Egyptians in the same way they tormented the Jewish people. Wow. Mita Kenege Mita much? Yes. <laughs> the very, very principle of Hashem. He doesn't just inflict unnecessary and random punishments upon people just to torment them and torture them. They're, like you say, Niga uh, Kenege Miga. Wow. You know, it's, it's, measure, it's measure for measure. Well, how and, about that? Like he's a just God lesson, or something. Lesson. What's that? Like he's a just God or something. Exactly. And not only not only does it point to his justice, but it also points to his mercy. 
Because why is it that he punishes measure for measure? What would his purpose be? Besides inflicting accurate justice, what else does that bring? Musar. Yes. Personal self-correction, teshuva, bezrat yeah. <laughs> He's allowing people something that's directly in their face to remind them of their, their past sins, their wrongs that they brought upon, brought, brought upon other people or themselves or to Hashem. And saying, hey, I'm, this is measure for measure. It's not just to bring exact justice to you and not no more, no less. It's actually an, um, a way of, of bringing mercy to you, allowing you to have the merit of looking within yourself and saying, I'm wrong, and then turning back to me. So and there is no justice without the mercy of Hashem, and there's no mercy without the justice of Hashem. Yes, they go hand in hand. They're completely intertwined and attached, and they work like a, a beautiful symphony or a marriage. And so a lot of people have a hard time with this whole concept. It mentions the, the half Torah about Hashem says, you know, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And that's mentioned several throughout the first few, uh, you know, parshas of, of Reason is, and a lot of the commentaries say that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart in a way to give him courage that the plagues won't just like scare him into um, scare him into just let releasing the Jewish people. Right. Because he wants Pharaoh to, on his own accord, mm. release them. Come because on. Hashem's trying to do something miraculous with Egypt. He's trying to redeem them along with his people. Oh man. Wow. So, and there's there's this idea, furthermore, of not just the bad things are repaid, but also the good things. Mm. And if you don't see that in your life, just just hang on, because chances are he's rewarding you in the next world, which will be so much more beautiful. That's right. Don't forget it. Which brings us to this idea we mentioned that he struggled with idolatry in Egypt. This is also in the half Torah. We have in verse 9, 27-9. Therefore, to be worthy of the redemption once again, by this will the sin of the Jewish people, called Yaakov, be atoned. And this is the main point in getting rid of his transgression, by converting all the stones of idolatrous altars into crust chalk. The astral trees, the images of the sun gods, must no longer remain standing. So Yahshua is talking about the inhabitants of the kingdom of the ten tribes, who are guilty of many sins, but the root issue of their entire transgressions was idol worship. And if they were able to destroy this sin, to eradicate it, to crush it, to be aware of it, and to destroy it completely, it would bring about complete teshuva. Amen. And, uh, you know, just something for us is we can't just look at what we're doing wrong. Yes, that's a great step. We need to really take a moment in our, in our day, a certain time period, and and address within ourselves why we are doing that thing. What is the root issue within ourselves? And if we're able to be aware of that, and we're able to deal with the root issue, all these little wrong a uh, issues and actions and, and thoughts or whatever they may be that, that we are guilty of will be completely stopped. Amen. Can you hear that song? Amen. Amen. It's beautiful because, you know, all of our prayer times, that's what they're meant for. You know, we're not just meant to go into prayer with mindless reciting of liturgy. Like <laughs> literally prayer means self-judgment. Like we're judging ourselves when we pray. And so if we really truly do that, what you just mentioned about taking stock and really looking at why are we doing what we're doing? 
that is the most beautiful time ever to do that. And as Hosea says, take words with you and return to Hashem. Like that is that whole, that's the whole picture. Our prayer is that prayer time with our Siddur is the words that we're taking. But at the same time, we're taking words we're supposed to be returning to Hashem. So figuring out what it is and really bringing that to him as an Akidah, buying that up in your sacrifice. Yes. Amazing. I love you mentioned Akidah because we're actually going to get to that. Oh, my word. Hashem, we're going we're gonna to touch on that in this half tour. It's there. But first, but first, first if the Jews will destroy their idols, then the fortified cities of their enemies will become desolate. Their enemies' habitation des deserted and forsaken like a wilderness. The calf, the ten tribes, will pasture there and rest there and destroy the enemy's branches, conquering the enemy's land. Mm. So I mentioned this idea of the calf. Who is this, where does this calf and Midrash quotes that it is in reference to the ten tribes who are also known by the name Ephraim. Ooh. And interesting enough, according to the Midrash, this is referring to the final redemption. And the calf doesn't just hint as the ten tribes as a whole. It doesn't just hint at Ephraim. It hints at what all these tribes are embodied in, in one, one person. Which <laughs> is... Mashiach ben Yosef. Right. The vine with the true branches. Yes. True vine with the branches. Oh, my goodness. So he says Yosef uh, because he's, it says the calf. And Yaakov, you know, according to his blessings in Vayachi. Uh, That's right. Towards the end, he's compared to an ox. That's right. And so they, they mentioned that he will pasture there. And we just got talking about in all this this idol this, uh, idolatry in, in Egypt. He's going to pasture there. And the sages explain this. Chazal explain as such. A Mashiach will be raised in Edom and finally destroy it. And the Midrash comment says this occurrence will resemble that of Moshe growing up in Pharaoh's palace and then causing Egypt's entire downfall. Oh, my word. And so, yes, you could say, you know, Mashiach, according to uh, Talmud, is at the gates of Rome. And right here you say he will be raised in Edom, you know, synonymous with Rome and, and the idea of Christianity as well. But wow. that doesn't mean he's staying there. Did Moshe stay in Pharaoh's palace? No. Did this relate to the people of Moshe's palace? Mm. The only argument of who he probably related to in, in his palace was his... His, his mother, Batya. Why? Because she was a convert. Because she chose to, to reach out into the water and, and grab and grab Moshe and take, her, take him in. And still, and still allowed him and made him aware of his Jewish identity. And mentions that Moshe went out to his brethren. How did he know that those were his brothers if Batya didn't tell him? Well, can I tag real quick to that? Same concept yeah. because uh, Revelation 18.4 is what I've been quoting since we probably started these after a podcast, which yeah. is the come out of her, my people, that you not be partakers of her sins and that you receive not her plagues. Now, if you look at that context as speaking of Babylon, but remember, Edom, Asaph is the daughter of Babylon. As we talked about when we elucidated Tehillim 137. And so 
we see this whole picture that you're talking about. Moshe came out of Egypt. Batia came out of Egypt. So no different. Mashiach will come forth from Edom, will come forth from Christianity. So if you are a part of Christianity, follow Mashiach out. Amen, because it mentions this comparison to uh, Yosef and to Moshe. Even though they were in these high positions within um, the exile, the, the land of the exile, they related to who? They related to their brothers, they related to the Jewish people, and they related to the converts. Were like the native born, as Hashem says, treat them like they're one of your own. And so that's something to keep in mind. Come and keep in mind. Amen. You know, this this whole idea of um, Bhakti, you say, oh, okay, well, it's hard. It's hard. It's so difficult to to live in this exile and live in this and you know workplace I do have have a family that, that does this kind of stuff or whatever. Yep. It's so hard. How it's like a it's like a far reach to strive for living a Jewish life, living in Hashem's culture. Well, the Midrash and uh, Chazal actually have touched on that note. Within uh, Batia, it says when Batia reached out for Moshe, they said her arms just like extended out. Come on. Like, extremely long, like Dr. Fantastic. <laughs> That's right. What, what do they mean? You know, is that, is that something to be taken literally? No, it's, it's Midrash. It's there, like, for the spiritual elevation. There's, there's, there's something there behind it. It's not necessarily to be taken literally all the time. You can go out on a limb on it, though. Oh yeah, <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> Stretch. <laughs> so, what, what 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 does that mean? She literally stretched out her hands like like she had this concept. Even though she was Pharaoh's daughter, even though she knew she could be killed, exiled for taking in a Jewish child for real. and allowing him to retain his identity, she knew that this was this was a far-reaching goal. She had it was going to be nearly impossible. But as soon as she stretched out her hands, it, it says, you know, that, that extended and grabbed Moshe. That's right. What is this teaching? It says, even if these goals are, are completely beyond us, that, that even if our ideas and our dreams are a far reach, we are reaching out and extending for the purpose of Kedush Hashem, for the sake of sanctifying yep. Hashem's name, yep. Hashem will bring us to that. Amen. No matter how far up it seems, if it's for his honor. That's because he's called Hamakom. Hamakom is the place, and the place is in Hashem, but Hashem is not in the place. So therefore, if there's any space, it doesn't matter, because you're in Hashem. Amen. So there's that. You know, we. this is, you mentioned, like, that's that's what makes it easier. It's knowing that you're in the place, you're in Hashem, wherever you are, yeah. even if you're in exile. Come on. And it's interesting, this thought, you know, will carry us through, but it, this this whole idea of it's hard, we're in exile, is nothing new. Wow. You know, this is what they're dealing with. And, you know, verse 12, it mentions this whole, um, the day of re- re- redemption, Hashem will thresh you, B'nai Israel. It's not, not necessarily a term that seems like it's going to be an easy process. But huh. why is that? Nothing's too hard for Hashem. Is, is his hand too short? Oh, no, you didn't. No, it's not. So what is the issue? The Amuna. issue. Yes. The issue. Amuna, right? The issue has been and always will be us and our lack of Amuna. Good night. 
not just in what we believe, but in, in how the Namuda plays out in our actions. <coughs> so the difficulty is completely spiritual. Mm-hmm. And the Midrash quotes that, <coughs> even the Jews who have adjusted to their exile, uh, the Jews have adjusted to their exile, will be adjusted to there, but even those of us who have not assimilated with the people, with the culture, still have within us non-Jewish attitudes and traits and have come to accept the exile situation as normal. Many people are praying for an easier exile. Oh, give me this. Help me do this. Allow me to do this. Instead of praying for Mashiach. Oh. And so let's bring, this, let's just bring it to this, this practical note. How have we, you know, even just um, the idea of why is halacha needed? Why is it so important? This idea of it's framing us within a, a Jewish mindset. It's actually implemented to oppose being like the nations. <laughs> so it is it is literally Jewish halakha hmm. to, to do the opposite of what the pagans and the nations or whatever other culture is doing. Wow. And that's what that's what it's our, our customs and our halakha is is built around opposing idolatry, opposing paganism. The and so, very meaning of being Jewish, repudiating yeah. idolatry. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so, if you you don't have to get on, you know, Google and be like, "Oh, this is pagan. This is pagan. The Magen David is pagan, and this is pagan." Stuff like that. No, that's you know, it's a it's a load of garbage out there. There's a lot of misinformation. Mm. You simply have to follow Jewish halakha. Come on, hussies. You are naturally going to be living. A non-idolatrous lifestyle. You won't have anything rooted in paganism. Can you repeat that just just so we can put hearts at rest on yes. searching the web to make sure we're not being idolatrous? What do we need to do? Need to observe Jewish halakha. Simple. Wow. If you observe that, if you're diligent in your, in your study of that and you're pursuing of that, then naturally you're going to oppose um, the, this this idea of paganism and idolatry because our customs and our halakha is built around not being like them. It's passed down through history, um, through all these great sadakim, from Moses, Moshe, to Yehoshua, to the men of the great assembly, all the way down to where it is today. Man. And so they have a long history of knowing what paganism is. They didn't have to get on Google. They just simply passed it down. Hey, this is what they're doing. Don't do that. <laughs> And, and if so, it was pagan before, it's probably, well, it is still pagan. Yes. You know, and just to touch on, you know, a mentality that's really brought down into us and in, in the Edomite exile, you know, which is like Rome, Christianity, this whole idea of the law as a burden. And so this, this mentality will occasionally seep into our people. It will seep into the Jewish nation. And so... Like this whole idea, like even this idea of, oh, well, you mean you have to, you know, put on your right shoe, put on your left shoe, then tie your left shoe and tie your right shoe. You know, that's that's a little too much. Or, oh, it's telling you what hand to, you know, wipe with after you use the restroom. You know, that's a little too much. That's a little too, too burdensome. Are you crazy? You're insane. You just but really went there with that. You put that I, I actual did. halakha out there. Yes. Yes. Which is, but these things are actually, these things are actually based around, um, like, like even like tying your left shoe first. 
Man. Because usually you tie your you wrap your um, left arm into filling. Mm. And so what does it remind you of? It reminds you of attaching yourself to a shim. Did you, which oh. is this allusion to even the Akida, the binding of Yitzhak, which is an allusion to Mashiach himself. Oh, my word. And this is the same one with the whole, you know, using your, your non-wrapping to fill in hand to wipe with if you're a man. Wow. Because you don't want to have <clears throat> fill. It says the whole halakha wearing to fill in is not to be filthy. And so why would you, you know, wipe with the same hand that you wrapped to fill in with? Good night. I apologize. I apologize a little, a little crude, but just giving us uh, something practical and a uh, a new perspective and a new mentality on what it means to to follow halak and what that really does for us. See, it changes us on a subconscious level to worship a shem, whether it fears spiritual or not. We're in a subconscious worship of the true God, as opposed to going on uh, remote subconscious idol worship. All right, he then. Uh, there's that. <laughs> which we, we mentioned this whole idea of, of binding and the Akita that you mentioned before. Yeah. Which in our next verse, it talks about this great shofar being blown. Oh, yeah. The half Torah verse reads as this It will come to pass on the day of the redemption that a great shofar will be blown. Then, even the ten tribes who seem lost because they were led to Asher and concealed beyond the river Sabaton, and the Jews were cast out in the land of Egypt, will come and bow down to Hashem on the holy mountain Moriah in Jerusalem. Even before the Hamikdash will be rebuilt, they will bow at this holy site. Mm. The Jews lost in Asher we gathered in, this refers to the ten tribes whose location is currently unknown to us. Those who those cast out of the land of Mitzrayim refers to the generation that left Mitzrayim and died in the wilderness. In the future, their sins will be forgiven and they will rise at the resurrection. And according to Chazal, the future shofar blast is not something that's just merely symbolic. It says, just as a shofar was sounded when slaves went free at the beginning of the Yovel year, so will shofar in the future announce the great Yovel, meaning the Jewish people's freedom from exile and return to their true master. Wow. So, do you remember when Mashiach was talking about his coming? Oh, man, I was just about to, okay. Go for it, go for it. Throw it in there. Well, Modesty 44, 30, and 31. I I know you were going to drop something with Mashiach saying the shofar and the, I came to announce the day of the Lord's favor, but uh, you're going to do the other one. So, go ahead and do that one. I just, just go, go for it. There's always two Mashiachs somewhere, so... Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's a beautiful connection. Um, but, you know, he, he mentions in Mazjahu 24, 30, 31, he mentions the angels sounding this great trumpet as he's descending, the Son of Man's descending in, uh, from the clouds. Yes, and the and angels are gathering. Of course, the angels aren't blowing a trumpet. The angels are blowing the great shofar. <laughs> and so this is interesting because a, a few half-tours ago, through half-tours ago, we, we mentioned that Yosef, who we just mentioned in a couple of verses earlier in this half Torah, was sold for a pair of shoes. And this was, you know, like, like the brothers were saying, like, he's, he's a slave. He, he doesn't even need to wear shoes because he's a slave and we're going to buy shoes because we are over him. It also mentions this idea. So the shofar was sounded when slaves were set free at the beginning of the Yovel year. 
So whose bondage are we talking about? Is it just our own or is it Mashiach's bondage? The leper Messiah, the one who's sitting at the gates of Rome, the one who is right now raised in Edom and he's currently in the palace like Moshe sitting there waiting to be set free, waiting to execute judgment on our oppressors and lead us out into into deliverance, into back into the covenant, along with all those who were once our oppressors, should they hear the, the call of the shofar and be led back into Shuvah. Wow. That's beautiful. Well, because, you know, that's that's the whole elucidation about uh, the Shekinah is also an exile and Hashem guarantees us that we will be redeemed from exile because the Shekinah has to be redeemed. So yeah. when we look at Mashiach as the leper Mashiach as the, at the gates of Rome, we're likening him to the Shekinah who is in exile. Oh. So, you know. Yes. Are we wanting to be exiled? Absolutely. But even more so, the Shekinah wants to be exiled. So who are we attached to? Oh, man. Yeah. So. Well, that escalated quickly. I was not expecting you to go that far, but all right. Bruce Shem. Well, let's just mention this, this, this show far. You know, this, this is the instrument of deliverance, instrument of teshuva, you know. In case no one's heard heard this midrash, it mentions the shofar that it will come from the ram that was sacrificed by Abraham on Har Hamariah in the place of Yitzhak. Each of that ram's parts was reserved for important future function. Mm. Its sinews supplied the ten strings for David's harp, its hide, a belt for the prophet Eliyahu, its left horn, the shofar blown at the Gimla Torah, and its right horn, the larger one, with the great shofar sounded the time of redemption. And so yes, the Akida right here. (laughs) And of course, you know, it's this midrash might not always be meant to take literally, but it's there to paint a a vivid picture um, for you know, like our our spiritual elevation. So we have this idea that you know the the ram was actually burnt. Right. So what what is this saying? It's it's really talking about the merit of Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Yitzhak. (laughs) <laughs> that has stood by us throughout our history. And this is what enabled them to receive the Torah. And this is what is going to be, be the merit that allows us to gather in among the nations. Uh, quick tag on that shofar. This also comes from Dr. Sakal's insights that he found. I think it's from Archgrove. He says that the great shofar alludes to the spirit of prophecy that will come into the world in the final redemption to signal to the lost souls at the time of the end gathering has arrived to uh, signal to the lost souls that the time of the end gathering has arrived. So, yeah, about that with the spirit of Mashiach, the revelation of Torah, all these Lapidic insights that we're getting. Yeah, that's part of the shofar sounding. Yes, amazing. Just just look at that. The whole Akedah Ram, it's like... (laughs) Like that shofar, what that's used for, the, even the, the, the ten strings, the sinews for the, David, David's harp, its hide was a belt for Eliyahu, you know, like all the left horn that was given, that was blown at, at Sinai for the verse given the Torah. Mm. So what it's showing is literally what was sacrificed in place of us, that is the instrument of every aspect of our salvation. 
from Eliyahu, from the Tehillim that we recite in times of, of, of trouble and excitement and joy and when we're mourning, from where we're mourning to when we're, we're singing praises to Hashem. Come the Tehillim we recite. Come on. Our, our, internal, our internal shalom to our future shalom, which we brought when Mashiach returns. Maybe all all these aspects, all these aspects are hidden within the thing, the one that was sacrificed in place of Yitzhak, the one who was sacrificed in place of us. So incredible. All right. So with that, we are going to skip towards the ending section of our half Torah. Hey, don't forget your tab on the physical indulgence versus the mission of Hashem. Yes. So. Which is coming up to you All right, a little bit. Hashem. All right. All right. So 28.9. Since the adults are busy enjoying their wine and good food, whom shall the prophet teach knowledge? And whom shall he impart the messages he heard from Hashem? Perhaps the babies who are weaned from their mother's milk, who have just been taken off the breast? Yeshiyahu complains that the people's lives revolved around their pleasures. <laughs> okay, tab accepted, I guess. All right. <laughs> They're not interested in his reproof. He is left with an audience of two to three year old children. In biblical, time, biblical times, children were weaned at that age. Mm. So, so that, well, that explains when Yitzhak was weaned from Sarah, the whole celebration that happened in uh, Parsha, uh, I believe it's Vayera, where the birth of Yitzhak happened, and it says, that Abraham threw a big party at the weaning of Yitzhak. Mm. So, told off for that elucidation, that was been something in the back of my head, like, what does that mean? And it's like, oh, yeah, he was the same age that Mashiach was taken to Egypt when, right before, uh, right before that is when the Magi showed up. So the Magi showed up to Mashiach's birth at his weaning uh, age, which is that two to three that you're talking about. Oh, wow. infant. So the weaning of Yitzhak and when the Magi visit Mashiach are correlated right there. So anyway, keep going. I just couldn't help myself thinking about that. That's that's incredible because, you know, there's also, according to the Midrash, the the weaning of, of Moshe or the lack, the lack thereof, if you will. Because oh. one of the principles that this this verse teaches us is... You know, the principle, there's this principle that Moshe merited to speak to the Almighty because he only drank kosher milk. Oh, snap. <laughs> so, he refused to drink the, the milk from the, the Egyptians, from the idolaters, and this is actually what gave him the merit to speak with Hashem face to face. Man, come on. It was all in this, this weaning process of what, what he allowed to, who he allowed to be weaned from and sustained from. That's really what that process is. Who he allowed to be sustained from. When, even if we're talking about just the, the basic things that was required of him at the time, he would have been allowed to drink that milk. So this but, is first Kepha 2.2, which it says, like, newborns crave pure spiritual milk. Yes! Yes, that is amazing. Come on. That's amazing. Man, the beautiful, beautiful parallel. Come on. Okay. Oh. What Moshe did in a, in a time when, when even his life dependent on it mm. he went above the mere letter of the law and exceeded that exceeded what was expected of him and this is how he was able to according to many opinions 
um, what, how the merit he had to speak to Hashem. Oh, oh man. Listen, Radak also says this, uh, that people whose involvement in food and drink makes them like foolish little children. There is no one for the wise men to teach. I think about the people who are like, I love God, but I just can't give up bacon. Or, man, I just can't eat kosher. It's just like, okay, so you want to be one of those people who are like foolish little children. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, you were saying, so go. Well, you know, speaking of children, <laughs> there's another principle this teaches us. This is Hashem teaches Torah to those who pass away young. So, let's get into, uh, not story time, but just Hashem's heavenly schedule. What he does during the, uh, divides the day into four four different sections, and what he does during each of these hours, if you will. Right. Hashem's daily schedule in heaven. In the first hour, he occupies himself with Torah. He judges the world. The third hour, he feeds all his creatures, from the gigantic Raim to the tiny Laos. In the fourth hour, he teaches Torah to children who passed away at a young age. And this is the meaning of the verse in Yeshayahu 28.9, the one we read. Whom does Hashem teach, teach knowledge, and whom does he, his, he impart information? To those who have passed away when they were weaned from the milk and taken off the breast. Another Midrash relates to this. As the angel Mimtet speaks, the angel Mimtet spends three hours daily in assembling the souls of those who died unborn, infants who died before weaned, and the small children who passed away while attending yeshiva. Mimtet leads these pure souls under the heavenly throne of glory. He divides them into groups and teaches them the written and the oral Torah, completing the Sefer Torah with them. There is if anyone who has has had the any tragic experience of, of losing a, a child or a, a young infant, anything like that, you know, this this is a, a true verse of comfort, understanding Hashem's daily routine in heaven. And so is it Hashem teaching? Is it Memtet teaching? Oh, yes. We take comfort in that, 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 that child is being taught by Hashem himself. That, ta- that, that, that child is being taught in the other opinions according to the angel whose, whose name whose Hashem's name is placed within him. Thank and you. so when we come to Lam Haba, that child is, is, is going to be, be our teacher. Wow. <laughs> the teacher takes their once father or mother. And so it's a, a beautiful, beautiful words of comfort for anyone who's been through a, a tragedy, you know, such as that. And we get to our, our third principle that this teaches us is that Hashem favors Jews because their small children study Torah. Wow. Suffer me not the little children. <laughs> there's that there it is <laughs> so there's this discussion there's this discussion between the attribute of justice and Hashem mm. and the attribute of justice you know cries out why don't you wipe on the Jewish people for their sins and Hashem replies do you it essentially translates to do you know whom the Jews instruct in Torah even their small children who are hardly weaned from their mother's milk that merit is so great that it protects them like a wall Wow. And so you have um oh, tag on that. Yeah. Tag on that later. Okay. Uh we go into uh twenty twenty eight ten. And this is kinda where it might get confusing in, in a lot of different translations because it's like this this repetitive phrase about line for line and this is the for that. So the midrash. 
says the people, quote, a command by their idol against the prophet's divine command. One command instead of the other. Mm. They use a false plump line in judgment instead of the plump line of truth. Mm. One plump line instead of the other. When the prophet warns, in just a little while, the punishment will come, they respond mockingly. Let Hashem bring it in a little while. So this whole this whole line about this for that, a line in line, um, it's it's really this discussion of this this dialogue of they're saying what their idol has commanded of them, and Yeshiyahu is saying what Hashem has commanded of them, and they're mocking him. He's saying they're exchanging this for that. They're saying exchanging that for that, even though it has no value. And I'm just here trying to help them. <laughs> right. You know what? What do I get out of this? What do I get out of of, of teaching you, of rebuking you, of te- telling you what's wrong, what you're doing is wrong? I don't get anything out of that. I don't get pleasure in 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 complaining about the sins of Kol Israel. I hate to see that. This hurts me. But I'm doing this so that you could come back into covenant and have a close relationship with your true father. Wow. Well, that that's the definition of evil, by the way. The word ra, which is evil in Ivrit, it means to substitute truth. For falsehood. So, literally what you just elucidated is that we're walking in evil if we're going to substitute the commandments of God for idolatrous practices and prohibitions, or prescriptions, Slika. So, may we be far from that. Amen. Amen. So, we have in, in 13... Hashem's word concerning them is that they will have to obey the commandment, command of four nations instead of the Torah's command. One command instead of the other. They will be hit by the measure of punishment for the measure of their sins. They will abandon hope instead of living with good hope. In a little time, they will become few numbers in their enemies' lands. Their enemies will have the upper hand, so much so that they will have to go forward. They will stumble back and be broken, snared, and trapped. Well, that explains where we are today. Yes, and so that is in that's verse thirteen. That sure is <laughs> verse twenty-eight, thirteen. Wow. And yeah, it's in the 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 verse um, says to them the word of God was a law to a law, a law to law, a measuring line to a measuring line, a measuring line to a measuring line, a little a little there and a little there. As a minute snippet. Sleeka, that was our timer going off. Could you please repeat where you started from? Well, just just I want to kind of elucidate how the the midrash versus the verse, and if you just read it, um, says says to them the word of God was a law to a law, a law to a law, a measuring line to a measuring line, and a measuring line, uh, a little there, little there, has a minute significance. Therefore, because they did not listen to the Torah, they went on the path, and they will stumble, fall backward, be broken, trapped, and captured. So just go just go to show you um, what's being elucidated here. Because on the in the verse it might be a little confusing, a line for line, measure for a measure. Right. But here it's talking about they will follow the, the command of the nations instead of the Torah's commandments if that's what they want. They'll be hit a measure for punishment for the measure of their sins. They will abandon hope instead of living with good hope. A little time they will become few in numbers in their enemies' hands, their enemies will have the upper hand. So much more so that when they go forward, they will stumble back and broken and snared and trapped. Well, thank you for using Zafanat Paneak to clear that up for us. Oh man, that's why we need Torah Torah. That's right. But we don't like to end there, um, since it is, you know, it's it's customary never to end on a bad note. That's right. And so we'll bring it home note. for us. All right, let's bring it home on a good note. <clears throat> we have two two or two closing for verses that just um, help us end on a good note. All Look right. things in a positive direction. 
This is verse 20, uh, chapter 29, verses 22 through 23. Therefore, so says Hashem to the house, the family of Yaakov, he who redeemed Abraham from the fiery oven, oven in Or Kasdim. Yaakov will not be ashamed now, nor will his face now, now grow pale from embarrassment. For he sees that his children in his midst are Sadakim. They are called my handiwork, who sanctify my name. They sanctify the holy God of Yaakov and praise the God of Israel. Oh, it mentions this idea of um, the Jewish people, even though we have sinners in our, in our midst. Um, ultimately, our forefather Yaakov is going to be proud of us when we emerge as a nation that, that brings Kedush Hashem, which brings sanctification to his name. And so it mentions all these individuals who have sanctified his name, you know, Chaniah, uh, uh, Mishael, Azariah, and Nebuchadnezzar were cast into the fire furnace. That's right. And the bowing. Um, and this is actually a lot of times translated literally that Yaakov redeemed Abraham. <laughs> there is a, a midrash that elaborates on this idea. And so what would a half tour be if we did not have a story time? Story time. Come on. As, as a young boy, Abraham refused to bow to Nimrod's idols and he was cast into a fiery oven. A dispute arose in heaven as to whether Abraham deserved to be rescued from the flames. The Almighty suggested to the heavenly court, Abraham does not have the merit of his ancestors. Instead, let him be saved from the righteous children he will have in the future. The angel's objective, in this case, he does not deserve to be rescued, for he will father Ishmael. Hashem replied, but he will also have Yitzhak, who will submit himself to be slaughtered on Har Hamariah. The angels argued, but the wicked Esau will be born from Yitzhak. Hashem answered, the righteous Yaakov will come from Yitzhak too. Yaakov will be perfect in all his sons, Sadakim. At this point, the angels were silenced. They all conceded. Hashem deserves to be saved from the furnace and Yaakov's merit. Therefore, Yeshayahu was able to proclaim Yaakov redeemed Abraham from death. Get you some. So we got a few things. I'll, I'll make, these, make these points like a machine gun. We have the point of, first of all, you don't want to argue with Hashem. Don't get in debate. You'll lose. Um, the other point is that someone who, after another, redeemed the one who, was, who preceded him. And so even though Mashiach came at a certain point in time, he has the ability to redeem those who were before him. And another thing is this idea of this children. They, they're arguing in the merit of the children they'll be saved. And we mentioned that earlier when it's talking about um, like teaching towards the children is the merit that builds a great wall. And so this is the idea that this children, this, this youth allows us salvation it allows us protection, stability, security, and wholeness within our lives. And so um, we have this word, na'ar, that we've mentioned before. The word for, for youth that's, a, that's applied in reference to you know, angel mimpet and, and certain, certain individuals. And so this term is also related to this, this concept of redeeming and bringing atonement and bringing security and even even salvation in some cases. Well, Tolar Rabah, that was excellently machine gunned. I definitely was not going to get on, get out of in the uh, field on that one. Cause uh, I would have got shot. <laughs> so Ruka Shem, uh, do you have any last thing you want to say before we index our time? 
Um, just that the Shema is the greatest commandment, and that we should be very, very, um, very, very zealous to perform this. Make sure we're saying it morning and night. Uh, Mention this because in our, one of our last last tour portions, any of this half towards alluded to Yaakov's sons were Sadakim, and uh, the comments that the spirit of prophecy left him, and he thought his sons were unworthy, and so they responded, "Shema Israel." And then he said, And so there's this, this concept that, um, all, yes, we're talking about Israel as a nation, but also it's like we're talking to our, our father Yaakov. And we're saying, yes, look, look at us. We, we, we are, we're here. We're, we are fulfilling the commandments. You have righteous children. We're following in your footsteps. So you could, you could um, rest assured that we are following in and the path that you pay for us. And so, what do we know? What do we know? Bless you, Habibi, Toda Rabbah, and may Hashem continue to help us to cleave and attach ourselves to Yaakov, because we are his children. And ultimately, as we're doing that, we're attaching ourselves to the Shekinah, which is Mashiach Yeshua. Amen. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Zur kol ha'olamim, zadik bekol hadorot, ha'el ha'neeman, ha'omer ve'ose hamdaber, um kayem shekol devarav, emet vazedek. Ne'eman ata hu Adonai Eloheinu, vene emanim, devareka ve'davar echad, midvereka akor lo yashuv recham, ki el melek ne'eman ve'rakaman Baruch Ata Adonai Ha'el Haneeman Bekol Devarav Bishem Yeshua Hamashiach. Amen. Amen. Be blessed, Aki. Thank you for allowing um, us to be on this podcast together. Hallelujah. You as well. Toda Rabbah. And this is Shomer Man and Chasis Bas for the Haftarah Parsha for Parsha Shemot. Wishing everyone a Shavuot Tov. Shalom, shalom. Shalom.